text this morning is Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 42. We'll pick up verse 43 when we study chapter 10. So Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 42. The topic, Peter gets stirred up and embarks on a ministry tour during which two notable miracles occur. The title of our message, St. Peter's Miracle Ministry Tour. Right. Let's read Acts 9, 32 through 42. Now, it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Now, Father, we thank you for these two episodes on Peter's tour through the area. And I pray, Lord, that we would insert ourselves into the story, that your Holy Spirit would help us to see, Lord, how we are there being ministered to as Peter is going from church to church, talking to us, Lord, about our gifts and the way that you want us to operate in the body of Christ. We love you, Lord, and want to honor you and bring glory to you through everything that's said and done here this morning so that when we leave this place, we feel as though we've been in your very presence, Lord. You promised to walk in the midst of the church when we're gathered. We believe you for that, Lord. We sense you. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said... Amen. Have you ever forgotten to shake or stir a beverage that requires shaking or stirring? The first sip tells you something is terribly wrong. The need for shaking and stirring was common in Bible times as well, maybe more so. When wine, for example, was left too long to ferment in the same barrel, the sediment that settles to the bottom turned the wine sour. The barrels needed to be stirred up and poured out from time to time to guarantee good aging. The Holy Spirit used stirring as a spiritual metaphor. A few verses in the New Testament suggest that believers have a tendency to settle and thus need to be stirred up to guarantee good aging as we walk with the Lord. To the writer, uh, the writer to the Hebrew Christians, excuse me, said this, Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Peter, who is prominent in our text this morning, twice used the imagery. In 2 Peter 1.13, he wrote, 
Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, referring to his body, to stir you up by reminding you. And then in the last chapter of 2 Peter, in chapter 3, verse 1, he said, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. It is a stirred-up Peter who embarks on a ministry tour that takes him to Lydda and Joppa. We're going to see Peter exercise his gifts. In Lydda, it adds to the church. In Joppa, it edifies the church. Your gifts may not be healings and miracles, but if you are stirred up, the exercise of your gifts can add to and can edify the church all the same. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, get stirred up and see how it adds to your church. And number two, get stirred up and see how it edifies your church. First of all, in verses 32 through 35, get stirred up and see how it adds to your church. When we last saw Peter in the book of Acts, he had been sent from Jerusalem to see what was going on in Samaria. Philip had gone up there, and there was a revival taking place. Peter and John went up there to check out and help with that work. It seems he returned to Jerusalem because that is where Saul, the apostle Paul, visited him. Immediately after Saul's visit, Peter sets out on a ministry tour away from Jerusalem, or at least that's how it's presented to us here in the text. Could it be that hanging out with Saul had stirred something in Peter? I don't see how you could hang around with Saul and not get stirred up. Uh, the guy was just the most on-fire Christian of his era, some say, of all time. It wasn't that he had a, a charisma about him or his intellect, or any of the normal things that we would think of. I mean, it's just that he was completely focused on Jesus Christ and on sharing Christ with others, whether in the body or out of, uh, outside of the body, unbelievers. Paul was the kind of guy that if there was a wild mob of people wanting to tear him limb from limb, he wanted to talk to them. Perchance one or two of them would receive Christ before they killed him and they would enter into glory. I mean, he was just on fire for the Lord. You can't be around a person like that and not get stirred up. And so Paul, uh, Saul had said, we learned last week that he was 15 days in Jerusalem before he went off, spending some time with the apostle Peter. And now we see Peter stirred up and heading out on this ministry tour. When we fellowship with one another, whether it is official at a church function or Bible study, or whether it's unofficial, just as friends in the body of Christ, our desire should be to stir up one another spiritually. We should come away from each encounter wanting to love the Lord and serve the Lord more, never less. And so Peter headed out, and in verse 32 we read, now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. All Christians are saints. You don't have to do something special or several something specials. I don't know what the criteria are anymore for sainthood in certain churches, but there, you know, there are certain criteria. They think they're bending the rules for uh, you know, Mother Teresa and, and the recently departed Pope, I mean, they, you know, they don't really qualify, but they think they ought to be sainted. Uh, the Bible presents every believer as a saint. The moment you come to Jesus Christ in faith, you are a saint. 
because it only means that you have been set apart. That's the meaning of the word. And so you're, I'm Saint Jean and you're Saint whoever. Instead of getting Saint Christopher on your dashboard, get a bobblehead of yourself, put it up on your dash. <laughs> so that looks like you. Yes, that's Saint Jean, the patron saint, patron saint of my car. And uh, it might work for you, I don't know. But I just like bobbleheads. I think they're the coolest thing in the world. Found a website where you can make a custom bobblehead. I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm one click away. But anyway, <laughs> Peter headed out. Lydda was a town that Philip would have passed through after he left Jerusalem some years earlier. Whether he established the church there or other Jews who had been dispersed by persecution, we cannot be sure. It just reminds us that there was a lot going on in the first century that isn't recorded for us. Uh, what is recorded for us is for our learning, for our encouragement, but this is an ongoing story uh, that is continuing to the present day, the work of, of Jesus Christ through his church on earth. It must have greatly encouraged the saints in Lydda to receive a visit from Peter. It is encouraging to visit the saints, especially those in foreign countries. I remember going to the Philippines or to Japan or to Honduras, to China. More recently, we take these trips to Peru. And just going there, just being on the mission field with the saints that are laboring there is a tremendous encouragement to them. They understand the sacrifice financially and personally that it is for you to be there just to pray with them and encourage them. A lot of times we think, well, you know, that's a lot of money just to go over there and to, to minister. Let's just send them the money and never go. And, and, and it's priceless, really, the times that you spend there and the encouragement that you get, the mutual encouragement. So that's why we've always had a short-term missions program here at the church, and we always will. Vital that we visit one another and encourage one another. Verse 33, there he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. Aeneas was probably not a believer. We say that because he was called a certain man rather than a disciple. In a moment when we look at Dorcas, she will be identified as a disciple. And so this is a clue from Luke, who is the author of Acts, that Aeneas was not saved. He might have been the friend or the family of one of the believers at the church there at Lydda. Now, there was no medical hope for this guy. Uh, I know we like to joke about the barbaric state of medicine here in the 21st century, uh, and, and yet, uh, you know, you don't want to ever get transported back and have medical treatment uh, in the first century. I don't know what it entailed, but it has to be worse than going to any hospital anywhere in the world today. Uh, Maybe. But anyway, I mean, th there's no hope for this guy. He's bedridden. I'm sure he had spent his fortune on doctors and, uh, you know, just the suffering that this brought into his life. He's going to be paralyzed and bedridden for the rest of his life. And Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And he arose immediately. Peter evidently had the gift of healing. He and John had been used previously to heal the beggar at the gate of the temple. Now, one thing that you realize as you study the New Testament, the gift of healing doesn't operate whenever you want it to. God gives gifts of healing, and it seems like certain individuals are used and, and they would say, yes, I have the gift of healing. But it doesn't mean that they can just go from person to person, hospital by hospital, and heal whoever they want. It just doesn't work that way. It's a very unique and interesting gift to study. 
Peter evidently had spent some time with the Lord and was praying about this man, and God gave him the freedom and the faith to heal him. And so he says to him, Jesus the Christ heals you, arise and make your bed. Make your bed is a version of take up your bed and walk. And so the man heard and received the word and was enabled to do what he could not do. That is what God's word does. When you were yet dead in trespasses and sins, you nonetheless heard the word of God and you received it and you began to do what you could not do. You began to walk with God. Then as you continue in the Christian life, God speaks to you through his written word. He tells you to do many things that you cannot do, but you are enabled to do them. And this is a very important point. We, we hit it uh, every few weeks or so, but it's really just something to tuck away. A lot of times, because of the way we teach in the West especially, nothing wrong with it, but our kind of lecture-based teaching, and, and, and we, use, we like to go point by point, and people like outlines. Some of you, when you take notes, you're, you're just trained automatically to do outlines. And so a lot of times in a Bible study, we'll say things like, uh, you know, there, uh, God wants us to do this, and here's four things. And so we write them down, and, and, and so we start to think that if I do these four things, then I will be able to accomplish God's Word. And, and I think sometimes we, we miss something because a lot of times, it, for example, husbands always come to me and they say, you know, the Bible says that I'm to love my wife the way Christ loved the church. What are the steps to that? What are the three things? What are the five things? I, I think it's kind of a 12-step program myself, you know. <laughs> we have to have an accountability partner and all that. But anyway, you know, what are the steps? And if I do those things, and, and the idea, I think, you know, th that can be helpful. That I can understand that. But... I want to look at the word and say, you know, Jesus says, husband, love your wife the way Christ loved the church, and there is an enabling in the word itself. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you to do something you are empowered to do, and you can start doing it right now without any steps, without any points, without any notes in your margin of your Bible. We, well, Lord, how do I do that? Well, how does a, a, a paralyzed man stand up and walk? He receives the word of God, and he acts by faith on it. And, and so a lot of times, you know, we're looking for the points, and we're trying to do everything the word says to do, and, and we need to just believe that God has given us the ability to do these things he's asked us to, and then step out in faith. And that's what God's word does. It is powerful. It is alive. It divides between the soul and the spirit. As we follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit, believing we can do the things that the Lord is empowered to do, our lives change. And so in verse 35, so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. God used the miracle of healing to add to the church at Lydda. The miracle validated the message. Now, rather than debate whether or not God still heals today, he does, or whether the church is therefore failing somehow because we don't see healings every day, I want to make a more practical application. Sure, Peter's gift of healing was spectacular by our standards, but it was still only a gift, and he was still only a believer exercising his gift in the context of the body of Christ. Always remember that God the Holy Spirit distributes gifts to believers as he sees fit. If gifts of healing or miracles were necessary, God would give them to us. If he hasn't, rather than complain about it or stress out about it, we should trust in his wisdom. 
And this is a really freeing, liberating thought for us as a fellowship. Our understanding is that God adds to the church daily such as should be saved, and then God the Holy Spirit distributes gifts to individual believers. So whoever, let's take our church as an example, because we're here, whoever comes to this fellowship, considers themselves a member of this fellowship, they've been led here by God, gifted by God, and so God must feel that he has the perfect mixture of gifts, talents, and abilities to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish in our lives and in our community. And when I go off on a tangent and I decide that we're failing because no one is being healed, the dead are not being raised, you know, we're somehow faltering, then I'm accusing God of not providing for us the things that we need to accomplish the ministry. And, and it is a tangent, and a lot of churches go off on that tangent. Every few years, there's a movement within churches to go after healings and miracles. And uh, we're due for one, by the way. That's probably going to be the next thing that comes down the pike is uh, somebody who claims to have a, a healing or miracle ministry, and they'll have seminars teaching you how to heal people and what to say and all of those kinds of things. Now, I, I trust God. God is a sovereign God. He's a big God. As Jake was talking about in his passage to ponder, he created the universe. He's certainly able to mold and shape a church in Hanford, California. And so we look out upon the church and we say, Lord, who have you provided? What gifts and talents and abilities are there? How are you leading us with those gifts? What is our complexion? What is our character? What is our personality as a church? How have you so gifted us. And, and our effort is to bring everybody up to par with their gift, to stir everyone up so that they're exercising their gift or gifts, whatever they are, rather than seeking after people who are not available to us. Rather than settle into an average Christian life because my gifts seem ordinary, I am to stir up whatever gift or gifts I have been given and use them in the church. Now, in our midst, I'm sure there are people that are more like the Apostle Paul. You hit the ground running and you never look back. You're always pressing forward. You know, it's always about Jesus, Jesus everywhere you go, and you've never kind of settled in. But I think the majority of us, we kind of go in spurts. We, we're really, really busy for the Lord, and then we're not busy for the Lord. And then something stirs us up, and then we are kind of settled again. And this is a normal experience. That's why the Holy Spirit is able to use this example. He says, hey, get stirred up again. And so this is a great exhortation. We'll see in a minute when we talk about Dorcas. In a sense, it doesn't matter what your gift is. It's the gift God has given you. Stir that up and exercise it in the body of Christ. And so if you're in one of those times when you've kind of settled back and you're really not doing much to serve the Lord because your focus is on something else that isn't really spiritual, maybe it's time that you receive the word and get stirred up and see what the Lord might do. My gifts may seem ordinary compared to Peter's, but I am to stir up whatever gift or gifts I have been given and use them, exercise them. And when I do, when you do, one of the things that happens is that God adds to the church. Now, while Peter was healing Aeneas in Lydda, a godly woman was dying only 10 miles away from him in Joppa. 
Verses 36 through 42, get stirred up and see how it edifies your church. The woman we are about to meet on her deathbed was definitely stirred up. She was a daily blessing to her church family. Verse 36, at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. By the way, just some of you ladies that are pregnant with uh, uh, girls, a couple of great names right there. <laughs> Tabitha and Dorcas. Never fails both services when I said Dorcas. Some, somebody laughs every time you say Dorcas. I don't know, maybe, is it because we used to call each other dorks? Is that what it is? You dork. I wish I had known when I was in junior high that the feminine of dork was dork us. You know, then I... <laughs> and so these are great names. If you don't like Dorcas for obvious reasons, then go with Tabitha. Both are Hebrew and Greek names mean gazelle. From the comments about her here, we would say that she had the gift of helps, the gift of giving, probably the gift of showing mercy because she worked among the widows. Luke, the author of Acts, emphasized that she was actively exercising her gifts in the fellowship when he described her works and deeds using the word full. Like a vessel overflowing, her works and deeds were pouring forth. Dorcas is the kind of gal that if she came to church on a Sunday morning and saw that you know, your, your tunic was a little bit tattered. You were a widow sitting in the widow's section or however she identified you, and you had, you know, a tattered tunic. The next day, she would be on your doorstep with a tunic, and it would probably be wrapped with candy, uh, you know, and it would have a note, and, and you'd think, did you stay up all night and sew me a tunic? And she, praise the Lord, the blessings to the Lord. I mean, she was just that kind of a person. I like the last three words of this verse, which she did. They are a whole study in themselves, a great devotion for us to meditate on. A lot of believers talk about what they would like to do or what they intend to do someday to serve the Lord when other things have been taken care of, when, you know, life isn't so demanding, when things aren't pressing in on them. Dorcas did things. She didn't talk about them. She didn't plan them. She didn't even pray about them, if you understand what I mean. Certainly, she was a person of prayer. But when she heard about a need in the area of a tunic or a garment, she knew she didn't have to pray about that except to ask the Lord to provide her more hours in her day, more material, more thread, whatever it is she needed to meet that need. She did things, and it's a real encouragement to us just to be busy doing things for the Lord. Again, if there's something that's been on your heart to do, then do it. Verse 37, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Just a personal note here, I am so tired of the suffering that goes on in our world. I want the Lord to come before anyone else gets cancer or dies in a car crash or is otherwise left sorrowing and suffering. Maybe it's because I'm getting older and uh, more people are in serious situations than I used to know. Uh, 
Maybe it's because I've been working as a chaplain for 10 or 11 years and, and I don't, you know, I, bring, I, I deliver these death notifications and then afterwards people say, wow, you know, I don't know how you do that. You know, I wouldn't like doing that. Yeah, like I really enjoy that, you know, like that's, hey, give me more of that, you know, and stuff. I mean, no one likes that. It has to be done. Uh, and uh, just, the, just the suffering, just, you know, in general and specifically in the lives of, of many people we know and in many of your lives, even so come Lord Jesus. And, and a lot of times people will say to you or to me as a Christian, you know, something terrible has happened. Why did God allow this? And, and the answer to that is that God is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish eternally, but that all should come to repentance. The person who asks that question, if they're not a believer, they're part of the reason why God allowed that. He waited another day for that person to hear the gospel and come to everlasting life. Because once that trumpet sounds, once the dead are resurrected, once the church is raptured, it's our understanding that you're thrown into the great tribulation and there's some confusion about whether people who have heard the gospel previously are even going to have an opportunity to get saved. If they do, it's going to be really hard to come to faith in Jesus Christ during the great tribulation. Greg Laurie likes to say, if you can't serve him now, how are you going to die for Jesus later when it becomes a capital offense to be a Christian? And so the answer to that question is, is that that person is still in their sin and that God waited another day, and in that day, in our fallen world, disease and death and destruction took place. But God has done everything that he can do to reverse the consequences of the fall. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. He rose from the dead, and he's coming again. But for me, even so come, Lord Jesus. Verse 38, and since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Maybe they sent for Peter while Dorcas was still alive, thinking he could heal her. Maybe they sent for Peter after she was dead, believing he could raise her from the dead. We don't know. Either way, they saw Peter as a resource they could call upon. God was using him to heal. Now, Peter had made himself available. Rather than hanging out in Jerusalem and writing his memoirs some 30 or 40 or 50 miles away, he had headed out on a ministry tour and was just 10 miles away from Joppa. And so he had put himself in a place where it was feasible for them to go and get him and bring him back. Had he still been down in Jerusalem, that's not really going to work. The journey would have been too long round trip. And so Peter had made himself available. Sometimes you and I just need to make ourselves available to God, and then he will begin to use us. You might have to be a little patient. A lot of times people say, hey, I'm here. I'm ready to be used of God. And it seems like there's, quote, unquote, nothing to do. But if you will make yourself available and be faithful, you will find yourself ministering to other people. And so be available to the Lord. And not just at the regular times, at odd times. God, I found, likes to use people at odd times. 
Uh, I mean, we need people to show up to teach the word and to be in the Sunday school and to do all of the various official things that you do as a church. And that's a, an amazing, fantastic service to the Lord that we, we praise the Lord daily for. But God loves to use you at odd times to talk to different people when you're rushed, when you really need to get home, when you, you knew you shouldn't have left the pot boiling on the stove, you know, and, and now there's somebody in the parking lot saying, what must I do to be saved? And, uh, you know, so you just, you know, God's got a sense of humor like that. And, and uh, uh, so we need to keep ourselves in a place of being available. And, and that reminds us not so much just being available, uh, you know, but, but being ready to be available. And I mean, simple things like, am I rested? Have I been in the word? Am I in fellowship? Could I even be used of God right now? What kind of a state am I in? And those kinds of things. God wants to use us. And so it says in verse 39, that Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Maybe she had a little label with her logo in there, you know. Made by Dorcas. <laughs> or Tabitha, I guess, since Dorcas is such a lame name. But anyway, Dorcas had a tremendous impact on the Calvary Chapel in Joppa. It's really scary to me when first service laughs more than you guys. I just, I wonder if I'm really here or I'm just a projection. But anyway... She wasn't a pastor. She wasn't a deaconess. She wasn't a teacher. She was a seamstress, but coupled with her spiritual gifts of helps, giving, and showing mercy, she touched the lives of countless widows in that fellowship. Your skills and your trade are not supernatural gifts. They were acquired and learned. You might be gifted in an area from a human standpoint, I hope that you found a trade or a profession that you enjoy, and, and it could even be said of you that you're really gifted at it. But those things are not gifts of the Holy Spirit. However, like Dorcas, when coupled with supernatural gifts, your skills and trade should be touching the lives of others for God, especially in the household of faith. Dorcas could sew. And so she came into the body of Christ, and she saw the widows... They had need, and so because she had a gift of helps and a gift of giving and the gift of showing mercy, she took those natural abilities and, and kind of a natural giftedness that she had, and she gave it over to God, and he used it in a tremendous way. It should be said of all of us, of every Christian, that we are full of good works and charitable deeds, which we are doing. And so the scene was set. Dorcas was dead. What was Peter going to do? Verse 40, but Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Maybe Peter looked down and saw his what would Jesus do bracelet. Because commentators point out that Peter's actions are very much like Jesus' actions when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. There's a, an episode in the Gospels where the, uh, Jairus' daughter is dead. Jesus comes, and he puts everyone out, and then he says to the little girl, Talitha kumi, damsel arise. Peter was there. He had witnessed that. And so Peter puts everyone out, and he says, Tabitha Kumi, 
Tabitha arise. And so there's a, a kind of a, almost a mimicking of, of what Jesus had done. Now, is that teaching us that we should learn how to heal by doing what Peter did? No, what it's showing us is that believers are able to do exactly what Jesus did when he was on the earth. Jesus said, it's good that I leave because I'm going to send you another comforter. He said that we would do greater works than he had done. And he meant that because we would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and spread all over the globe, that we would do the same works that he did, only greater in number because there are more of us. And so Peter, not really mimicking the Lord so much as, as showing us that he could do what Jesus had done because Jesus was doing it through him. What an encouragement for you and I to know that the Lord can use us in these ways. Peter prayed, and evidently God told him he was going to resurrect Dorcas. He turned to her and said, Tabitha Kumi, Tabitha arise, and she arose. Now, I always like to point out that although raising the dead is fantastic, those who were raised returned to a mortal life to face suffering and death all over again. I want to tell you right now that when I die, I don't want anyone to pray for my resurrection. Not that you would, but if you're tempted to because you just can't live without me, I don't want to come back. I mean, imagine, just think of it for a minute. I mean, just what little we know about heaven, heaven, glory, Jesus Christ, angels, People that we knew who've gone before us, or you want to come back and do some more sewing for the widows. And I mean, you know, it's, I'm not sure. And it, the encouragement here is for us to be careful how we pray as well, or to at least monitor our prayers. A lot of the things we pray for really are selfish. And that's why Paul will later say, you can sorrow for the dead in Christ, but not as others who don't have hope. Let them go into glory. And, and sorrow because they're gone from you, but know that you'll see them again. Verse 41, then he gave her his hand, lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. God had given Dorcas back to the church and to the widows. What do you think she did? Well, I'm sure that she went right on sewing for them. If she was full of serving before, she must have gone into overdrive now. Serving the Lord only increases the closer you get to him. Verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. Evangelism was a byproduct of the miracle, but it seems to me that Luke's emphasis in the story about Dorcas is more upon the church being edified and encouraged. Once again, we might be put off that we do not see the gift of miracles being exercised. We must remind ourselves that the distribution of the gifts is up to God. We don't earn them. It's not that God wants to grant us miracles, but we are not quite holy enough to be entrusted with them. And by the way, this is usually what happens when a church or a group starts to down this path of why don't we see more healings? Why don't we see more miracles? Eventually, you get to the point where you think there must be something wrong with the people that are sitting out in the chairs. And so you start to hammer the people. You're not holy enough. You're not repenting enough. You're, you're not good enough for God to give us these gifts. And, and you get almost into a works-based Christianity rather than just trust God in his sovereignty. 
We should be content with the gifts God has granted us, and we should be exercising them. Content in the sense of these are the gifts that God has given us, no more, no less, but stirred up in their exercise. In the church, it isn't going to be productive to chase after certain gifts and let those that God has already given settle. When we exercise our gifts, believers are built up in their love and faith. Now, we might just for fun compare Peter and Dorcas. Who had the greater impact on the church? Well, your answer depends on whether you needed a healing or a house dress. If you needed a house dress, Dorcas was the go-to gal. If you went to Peter, he's like, go see Dorcas. When you die, come and see me. And we'll see if the Lord wants to raise you from the dead or not. But, I mean, so, you know, just, it, and this is, it sounds silly. It sounds stupid, actually, to compare these two. But this is how God works in the body of Christ. We're not all gifted the same way, but we're all to be exercising our gifts, pouring them forth full of these things so that the body of Christ is built up. The church in Joppa was doing just fine without Peter or the other apostles, but when Dorcas got sick and died, it sent shockwaves through their midst as they realized her importance. It's not that she was irreplaceable. You never want to think that you're irreplaceable or people can't get by without you. But it is to emphasize the importance of every single believer being stirred up to exercise his or her gifts so that the entire church can be built up. So you and I are not irreplaceable. But within the body of Christ, it doesn't mean that we're unimportant. While I'm there, while I'm part of that body, I'm important to that body, whether I can heal people or whether I'm a seamstress and have the gift of helps. Instead of wondering where all the healings and miracles are and wanting to be like Peter, we ought to learn to be content with the gifts and talents and abilities God has given us and take our cue from Dorcas. In fact, we are both uh, like both Aeneas and Dorcas, really, if you think about it. If you're not a Christian, you are Aeneas before he was healed. You're unable to walk with God, but if you hear the word and receive it, you'll be enabled to do what you cannot do. If you're a Christian, you can be more and more like Dorcas. You can throw yourself into serving the Lord by serving his people. Christians always ask, and it's a good question, especially after a study like this, how then do I discover my gifts? Well, it helps to know what gifts are available to you. You can find lists of them in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. The lists are probably not exhaustive. Uh, there are other gifts that we could name, but that's a good starting point. More importantly, and to the point, you discover your gifts by being available to God's people and then responding to their needs. Just get involved. You know, the, the best way to find out how God has gifted you is to be a a vital part of a local fellowship of believers, come to the meetings of the church, and then respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit as you see different needs and hear about different things. And after a period of time, you will find yourself exercising certain gifts of the Spirit that the Lord has given you. What if you've settled in? What if you've been a Christian for a long time and you're kind of settled? Well, one thing you can do if you know what gifts God has given you is try and think of ways you can exercise those gifts that are outside of maybe your comfort zone. 
Because that's really what we're talking about, getting comfortable the way that God has gifted you so that it's almost kind of an autopilot thing. I love, this is, this is what I really love, is coming on Sunday mornings and teaching God's Word. I, it's just the greatest thing in the world. Don McClure, I was listening to him the other day, he said, he said, pastors, they do everything else so that they can do this. I mean, that's the thing that you really want to do. But it, it, gets, it can be comfortable. I, I enjoy it. I love it. I love looking at your smiling faces. I, even some of you that don't have smiling faces, I love your faces too. I mean, it's just very comfortable and normal, and I trust the ushers to protect me from harm, and, you know, those kinds of things. <laughs> and so over the years, you know, in order to stir up the gift that is in you, you you've got to do different things that you're not so comfortable doing. I remember several years ago, we were going to Avenal State Prison every Thursday night. We did it for five years, teaching Bible study at the prison. I don't know what I expected when I first went out there, uh, but it wasn't what I expected. I, I met the chaplain of the prison at that time, and he took me into the yard. There's six different yards out there with prisoners. He took me into the yard, and we went into the room that the Christian uh, inmates used for their Bible study on Thursday nights. Uh, and it was just a room, just a regular classroom-type room. And then he said, okay, they'll be here in about 15 minutes. God bless you. And I said, well, when exactly are my guards going to be here? Where's my gun? You know, where's the bulletproof glass? You know, I was cool about it. I, I didn't show too much fear. I mean, I sweat, but I, I didn't show fear. And then sure enough, you know, I didn't know what I expected, but sure enough, here come these inmates. They don't even know who I am. And they, one guy goes, he goes, I guess you're here to teach us, you know, and I go, yeah. And so, and then, and that went on for five years. And, and then I started to grow a little bit comfortable with that. And, and, uh, but it was a real challenge. And then one night I was coming back, I was with Eric Miller, who's now up at Calvary of the Sierra. And Eric and I were talking, and he says, he says, yeah, I was so embarrassed because tonight he says, I was adjusting my pants and I hit my emergency beeper. I go, you, you did what? He goes, I, I hit the emergency beeper. I go, you carry a personal emergency beeper around with you? He goes, what are you talking about? I go, what are you talking about? He goes, Gene, every time you go into the yard, they give you an emergency beeper. <laughs> and if there's an emergency, you press the button. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I pressed the button by mistake, and all these guards came running in. It was kind of embarrassing. I said, Eric, I've been going out here for five years every Thursday night, and they've never given me an emergency beeper. I still don't know what that means about whether they wanted me there or not. I'm not, you know, if it was faith or whatever. I don't know what I even think about that. But it's just interesting. And so maybe you're kind of settled into what you're doing. That happens. Challenge yourself. Ask the Lord to give you something more where you have to depend upon Him again. You'll be glad that you did. And it ultimately comes down to this. Am I full of good works and charitable deeds that I'm already doing because I've been stirred up in the gifts that God has graciously given me? Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for these things. You're a giving God. You give us salvation. And then afterwards, you give us gifts, uh, and then we're even able to use our talents and our abilities, Lord, to serve you, empowered by those gifts. And I just pray, Lord, today, it's my desire that all of us would be stirred up in an encouraging way by this text, that we would see that even an apostle needed to be stirred up 
nor to be put off by gifts of healing and miracles, but to be encouraged by gifts of helps and giving, gifts of showing mercy, using our hands to minister to one another. And that we would understand the personality and the complexion of our church, that we would realize, though we're not irreplaceable, uh, that we are needed and necessary for the time that we're here, and that all of us would be listening to and responding to the promptings of God the Holy Spirit to give more of ourselves. You've given us gifts to give to others, Lord, to pour ourselves out as a drink on the ground, trusting that we will be filled and refilled over and over again. It's our desire to present you as a good and gracious God, as a Savior who loves us and is romancing us and drawing us closer to you. Even so, Lord Jesus, come is our prayer. In the meantime, use us, fill us, that we might be a blessing to one another and to others in the household of faith and outside as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Let's stand together. What a joy to know the Lord today. I've been encouraging you uh, from week to week to meet somebody that you don't know just as a kind of a spiritual exercise and so keep up to speed with that. Also, I'd like to encourage you if, you, if you've never been in the chapel bookstore, visit the store, just encourage the staff. You can walk in and walk out. We're not trying to sell anything. You know, it's, it's not that kind of a thing. Uh, but it's a neat resource and uh, probably a very small percentage of our fellowship really ever gets over there. Uh, and so just stop in, say hi, and see what we've got going over there. That's your, that's your next assignment. After you meet somebody, go there. Then come back and grab a chiller uh, and then we'll eventually kick you out. But, you know, it's just... What a great place God has given us to fellowship with one another. How many of you remember remember the YMCA? Remember being at the Y, how you're chased out every week? You're trying to pray for people and chairs are being broken down and the Y staff and trustees, you know, who are let out of prison. I mean, people are walking around. What a great opportunity we have just to hang out with one another and to encourage one another, to stir one another up to love and good works. May God bless you. May God keep you in Jesus.